Welcome to Volume 4 of How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 7 This cow creamer, in case you're interested, was a silver jug or pitcher, or whatever you call it, shaped of all silly things like a cow, with an arching tail and a juvenile delinquent expression on its face. A cow that looked as if it were planning, next time it was milked, to haul off and let the milkmaid have it in the lower ribs. Its back opened on a hinge, and the tip of its tail touched the spine, thus giving the householder something to catch hold of when pouring. Why anyone should want such a revolting object had always been a mystery to me. It ranked high up on the list of things I would have been reluctant to be found dead in a ditch with, but apparently they liked that sort of jug in the 18th century. And coming down to more modern times, Uncle Tom was all for it, and so according to the evidence of the witness, Glossop was Wilbert. No accounting for tastes is the way one has to look at these things, one man's caviar being another man's major general, as the old saw says. However, be that as it may, and whether you liked the barley thing or didn't, the point was that it vanished, leaving not a rack behind, and I was about to apprise Pop Glossop of this and canvas his views when we were joined by Bobby Wickham. She had doffed the shirt and Bermuda shorts which she'd been wearing and was now dressed for her journey home. Hello, souls. She said, How goes it? You look a bit hot and bothered, Bertie. What's up? I made no attempt to break the end gently. I'll tell you what's up. You know that cow creamer of Uncle Tom's? No, I don't. What is it? A sort of cream jug thing. Ghastly, but very valuable. One would not be far out in describing it as Uncle Tom's ewe lamb. He loves it dearly. Well, bless his heart. It's all right blessing his heart, but the damn thing's gone. The still summer air was disturbed by a sound like beer coming out of a bottle. It was pop gloss of gurgling. His eyes were round, his nose wriggled, and one could readily discern that this news had come to him not like a rare and refreshing fruit, but more like a buffer on the base of the skull with a sock full of wet sand. Gone. Gone! Are you sure? I said that sure was just what I wasn't anything but. It's not possible you may have overlooked it. You can't overlook a thing like that. He regurgled. But this is terrible. Might be considerably better, I agree. Your uncle will be most upset. He'll have kittens. Kittens? That's right. Why kittens? Why not kittens? From the look on Bobby's face as she stood listening to our crosstalk act, I could see that the inner gist was passing over her head. Cryptic she seemed to be registering it as. I don't get this. She said. How do you mean it's gone? It's been pinched. Things don't get pinched in country houses. They do if there's a Wilbert cream on the premises. He's a klepto whatever it is, I said, and thrust Jesus' letter at her. She perused it with an interested eye, having mastered its contents, said, Caw, chase my Aunt Fanny up a gum tree. Adding that you never know what's going to happen next these days. There was, however, she said, a bright side. You'll now be able to give it as your considered opinion that the man is as loony as a coot, said Roderick. A pause ensued during which Pop Glossop appeared to be weighing this, possibly thinking back to coots he had met in the course of his professional career, and trying to estimate their dippiness as compared to that of W. Cream. Unquestionably, 
His metabolism is unduly susceptible to stresses resulting from the interaction of external excitations, he said, and Bobby patted him on the shoulder in a maternal sort of way, a thing I wouldn't have cared to do myself, though our relations were, as I have indicated, more cordial than they have been, and told him he had said a mouthful. That's how I like to hear you talk. You must tell Mrs. Travers that when she gets back. It'll put her in a strong position to cope with Upjohn in this matter of Wilbert and Phyllis. With this under her belt, she'll be able to forbid the bans in no uncertain terms. What price his metabolism, she'll say, and Upjohn won't know which way to look, so everything's fine. Everything I pointed out except that Uncle Tom is short one ewe lamb. She drew the lower lip. Yes, that's true. You have a point there. What steps do we take about that? She looked at me, and I said I didn't know. And then she looked at Pop Glossop, and he said he didn't know. The situation is an extremely delicate one. Do you concur, Mr. Worcester? Like Billio! Placed as he is, your uncle can hardly go to the young man and demand restitution. Mrs. Travers impressed it upon me with all the emphasis at her disposal that the greatest care must be exercised to prevent Mr. and Mrs. Cream taking... Umbridge! I was about to say offence. Just as good, probably. Not much in it in either way. And they would certainly take offence were their son to be accused of theft. It would stir them up like an egg whisk. I mean, however well they know that Wilbur is a pincher, they don't want to have it rubbed in. Exactly. It's one of the things the man of tact does not mention in their presence. Precisely. So really, I cannot see what is to be done. I am so baffled. So am I. Well, I am not, said Bobby. I quivered like a startled, what do you call it? She had spoken with a cheery ring in her voice that told an experienced ear like mine that she was about to start something. In a matter of seconds, by Shrewsbury clock, as Aunt Dahlia would have said, I could see she was going to come out with one of those schemes or plans of hers that would not only stagger humanity and turn the moon to blood, but lead to some unfortunate male, who on the present occasion would, I strongly suspected, be me, getting immersed in what Shakespeare called a sea of troubles, if it was Shakespeare. I had heard that ring in her voice before, to name but one time, at the moment when she was pressing the darning needle into my hand and telling me where I would find Sir Roderick Glossop's hot water bottle. Many people are of the opinion that Roberta, daughter of Lady Wickham of Skelding Hall, Hertz, and the late Sir Cuthbert, ought not to be allowed at large. I string it along with that school of thought. Pop Glossop, having only a sketchy acquaintance with this female of the species, and so not knowing that from childhood up her motto had been anything goes, was all animation and tell me more. You have thought of some course of action that it will be feasible for us to pursue, Miss Wickham. Certainly. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Do you know which Wilbert's room is? He said he did. And you agree that if you snitch things when you're staying in a country house, the only place you can park them is in your room? He said that there was no doubt to this. Very well, then. He looked at her with what I have heard Jeeves call a wild surmise. Can you be? Is it possible you're suggesting? Yes, that somebody nip up into Wilbert's room and hunt around. That's right. 
and it's obvious who the people's choice is. You're elected, Bertie. Well, I wasn't surprised. As I say, I'd seen it coming. I don't know why it is, but whenever there's dirty work to be undertaken at the crossroads, the cry that goes round my little circle is always, Let Worcester do it! It never fails. But though I hadn't much hope that any words of mine would accomplish anything in the way of averting the doom, I put in a rebuttal. Why me? It's a young man's work. Though with growing feeling that I was fighting in the last ditch, I continued rebutting. I don't see that, I said. I should have thought a mature, experienced man of the world would be far more likely to bring home the bacon than a novice like myself, who as a child was never any good at hunt the slipper. Stands to reason. Now don't be difficult, Bertie. You'll enjoy it. Said Barbie, though where she got the idea, I was at a loss to understand. Try to imagine you're someone in the Secret Service on the tracks of the naval treaty which was stolen by a mysterious veiled woman, diffusing a strange exotic scent. You'll have the time of your life. What did you say? I said, ha! Suppose somebody pops in. Oh, don't be silly. Mrs. Cream is working on her book. Phyllis is in her room typing up John's speech. Wilbert's gone for a walk. Upjohn isn't here. The only character who could pop in would be the Brinkley Court ghost. If it does, give it a cold look and walk through it. That'll teach it not to come butting in when it isn't wanted. Ha! Ha ha! Trilled pop gossip. I thought them mirth ill-timed and in dubious taste, and I let them see it by my manner as I strode off, for of course I did stride off. These clashings of will with the opposite sex always end with Bertram Worcester bowing to the inevitable. But I was not in a jocund mood, and when Bobby, speeding me on my way, called me her brave little man and said she had known all along I had it in me, I ignored the remark with a coldness which must have made itself felt. It was a lovely afternoon, replete with blue sky, beaming sun, buzzing insects and what not, an afternoon that seemed to call to one to be out in the open with God's air playing on one's face and something cool in her glass at one's side. And here I was, just to oblige Bobby Wickham, tuning along a corridor indoors on my way to search a comparative stranger's bedroom. This involving crawling on floors and routing under beds and generally getting covered with dust and fluff. The thought was a bitter one, and I don't suppose I have ever come closer to saying four. It amazed me that I could have allowed myself to be let in for a binge of this description simply because a woman wished it. Too bally chivalrous for our own good, we Worcesters. Always have been. As I reached Wilbert's door and paused outside, doing a bit of screwing the courage to the sticking point, as I've heard Jeeves call it, I found the proceedings reminding me of something, and I suddenly remembered what I was feeling. I was feeling just as I had felt in the old Malvern house epoch when I used to sneak down to Aubrey Upjohn's study in the dead of night in quest of biscuits he kept there and a tin on his desk. And there came back to me the memory of the occasion when, not letting a twig snap beneath my feet, I'd entered his sanctum in pyjamas and a dressing gown to find him seated in his chair tucking into the biscuits himself. A moment fraught with embarrassment. The what-does-this-mean worstering that ensued in the aftermath next morning, six of the best on the old spot, and always remained graven on the tablets of my mind, if that's the expression I want. 
except for the tapping of a typewriter in a room along the corridor, showing that Mark Cream was hard at her self-appointed task of curdling the blood of the reading public, all was still. I stood outside the door for a space, letting I dare not wait upon I would, as Jeeves tells me cats do in adages, then turned the handle softly and pushed, also softly, and carrying on into the interior found myself confronted by a girl in housemaid's costume who put a hand to her throat like somebody in a play and leaping several inches in the direction of the ceiling. Cue, she said, having returned to terra firma and taken aboard a spot of breath. You gave me a start, sir. Oh, frightfully sorry, my dear old housemaid, I responded cordially. As a matter of fact, you gave me a start, making two starts in all. I'm looking for Mr. Cream. I'm looking for a mouse. This opened up an interesting line of thought. You feel there are mice in these parts? I saw one this morning when I was doing the room. So I brought Augustus. She said and indicated a large black cat who until then had escaped my notice. I recognized him as an old crony with whom I had often breakfasted. I wading into the scrambled eggs and he into the saucer of milk. Augustus will teach him. She said, Now right from the start, as may readily be imagined, I'd been wondering how this housemaid was to be removed, for of course her continued presence would render my enterprise null and void. You can't search rooms with the domestic staff standing on the sidelines, but on the other hand it was impossible for anyone with any claim to being a chevalier to take her by the slack of her garment and heave her out. For a while, the thing had seemed an impasse, but the statement of hers that Augustus would teach the mouse gave me an idea. I doubt it, I said. You're new here, aren't you? She conceded this, saying she had taken office only in the previous month. I thought as much, or you'd be aware that Augustus is a broken reed to lean on in the matter of catching mice. My own acquaintance with him is long-standing one, and I have come to know his psychology from soup to nuts. He hasn't caught a mouse since he was a slip of a kitten. Except when eating, he does nothing but sleep. Lethargic is the word that springs to the lips. If you cast an eye on him, you'll see he's asleep now. Coo, so he is. It's sort of a disease. There's a scientific name for it. Traw something or other. Traumatic simplegy, that's it. This cat has traumatic simplegy. In other words... Putting it in simple language, adapted to the lay mind, where other cats are content to get their eight hours, Augustus wants his twenty-four. If you will be ruled by me, you will abandon the whole project and take him back to the kitchen. You're simply wasting your time here. My eloquence was not without its effect. She said, coo again, and picked up the cat, who drowsily muttered something which I couldn't follow, and went out, leaving me to carry on. Chapter 8 The first thing I noticed when at leisure to survey my surroundings was that the woman up top, carrying out her policy of leaving no stone unturned in the way of charming the cream family, had done Wilbert well where sleeping accommodations were concerned. What he had drawn when clocking in at Brinkley Court was the room known as the Blue Room, a signal honour to be accorded to a bachelor guest amounted to being given star billing, for at Brinkley Court, as at most country houses, any old nook or cranny is considered good enough for the celibate contingent. My own apartment, to take case in point, 
was a sort of hermit's cell in which one would have been hard put to swing a cat, even smaller one than Augustus. Not, of course, that one often wants to do much cat swinging. What I'm driving at is when I blow in on Aunt Dahlia, you don't catch her saying, Welcome to Meadowsweet Hall, my dear boy. I've put you up in the blue room, where I'm sure you will be comfortable. I once suggested to her that I be put up there, and all she said was, You? And the conversation turned to other topics. The furnishings of the blue room were solid and Victorian. It would have been the GHQ of my Uncle Tom's late father, who liked things substantial. There was a four-poster bed, a chunky dressing table, a massive writing table, divers' chairs, pictures on the walls of fellows in cocked hats bending over females in muslin and ringlets, and, over at the far side, a cupboard or armoire in which you could have hidden a dozen corpses. In short, there was so much space and so many things to shove behind that most people called on to find a silver cow creamer there would have said, Oh, what's the use? And thrown in the towel. But what I had the bulge on the ordinary searchers was that I am a man of wide reading. Starting in early boyhood, long before they were called novels of suspense, I've read more mystery stories than you could shake a stick at. And they've taught me something, viz, that anybody with anything to hide invariably puts it on top of the cupboard. Or if you prefer the armoire. This is what happened at Murder at Missley Manor. Three dead on Tuesday. Excuse my gat. Guess who and a dozen more standard works. And I saw no reason to suppose that Wilbur Cream would have deviated from routine. My first move accordingly was to take a chair and prop it against the armoire. And I had climbed on this and was preparing to subject the top to a close scrutiny when Bobby Wickham entered noiselessly and speaking from about 18 inches behind me said, How are you getting on? Really, one sometimes despairs of the modern girl. You'd have thought this Wickham would have learned that her mother's knee, that the last thing a fellow in a highly nervous condition wants when he's searching somebody's room is a disembodied voice in his immediate rear asking how he's getting on. The upshot, I need scarcely say, was that I came down like a sackful of coals. And for a while, the blue room pirouetted about me like an adagio dancer. When reason returned to its throne, I found that Bobby, no doubt feeling after that resounding crash that she was better off somewhere else, had left me, and that I was closely entangled in the chair, my position being in some respects similar to that of Kipper Herring when he got both legs wrapped around his neck in Switzerland. It seemed improbable that I would ever get loose without the aid of powerful machinery. However, by pulling this way and pushing that, I made progress, and I just contrived to de-chair myself and was about to rise when another voice spoke up. For Pete's sake. It said, and looking up I found that it was not as I had for a moment supposed from the lips of the Brinkley Court ghost that the words had proceeded, but from those of Mrs. Homer Cream. She looked at me as Sir Roderick Glossop had recently looked at Bobby, with a wild surmise, her whole air that of a woman who was not abreast, this time I noticed she had an ink spot on her chin. Mr. Worcester. She yipped. Well, there's nothing much you can say in reply to Mr. Worcester, except, Oh, hello! So I said it. You're doubtless surprised, I was continuing, when she hogged the conversation again, asking me, A, what I was doing in her son's room, and B, what in the name of goodness I thought I was up to. For the love of Mike. She added, driving her point home. 
It is frequently said of Bertram Worcester that he is a man who can think on his feet, and if the necessity arises, he can also use his loaf when on all fours. On the present occasion, I was fortunate in having had that get-together with the housemaid in the Catagustus, for it gave me what they call in France a point d'appui. Removing a portion of the chair, which had got entangled in my back hair, I said with candour that became me well, I was looking for a mouse. If she had replied, Ah, indeed, I understand now, a mouse to be sure, quite, everything would have been nice and smooth, but she didn't. A mouse? She said. How do you mean? Well, of course, if she didn't know what a mouse was, there was evidently a good deal of tedious spade work before us, and one would scarcely have known where to start. It was a relief when her next words showed that that what-do-you-mean had not been a query, but more in the nature of a sort of heart-cry. What makes you think there's a mouse in this room? The evidence points that way. Have you seen it? Actually, no. It's been lying with the French call perdu. What made you come and look for it? Oh, I thought I would. And why were you standing on a chair? Sort of just trying to get a bird's-eye view, as it were. Do you often go looking for mice in other people's rooms? I wouldn't say often, just when the spirit moves me, don't you know? I see. Well. When people say well to you like that, it usually means that they think you are outstaying your welcome, and that the time has come to call it a day. She felt I could see that Worcesters were not required in her son's sleeping apartment, and realizing that there might be something in this, I rose, dusted the knees of the trousers, and after a courteous word to the effect that I hoped the spine freezer on which she was engaged was coming out well, left the presence. Happening to glance back as I reached the door, I saw her looking after me, that wild surmise still functioning on all twelve cylinders. It was plain she considered my behaviour odd, and I'm not saying it wasn't. The behaviour of those who allow their actions to be guided by Roberto Wickham is nearly always odd. The thing I wanted most at this juncture was to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with that young femme fatale, and after roaming hither and thither for a while, I found her in my chair on the lawn, reading the Marcream book in which I had been engrossed when these doings had started. She greeted me with a bright smile and said, Back already? Did you find it? With a strong effort, I mastered my emotion and replied curtly but civilly that the answer was in the negative. No, I said, I didn't find it. You can't have looked properly. Again, I was compelled to pause and remind myself that an English gentleman does not slosh a sitting redhead, no matter what the provocation. I hadn't time to look properly. I was impeded in my movements by half-witted females sneaking up behind me and asking how I was getting on. Well, I wanted to know. A giggle escaped her. You did come down with a wallop, though, didn't you? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning? I said that to myself. You're so terribly neurotic, Bertie. You must try to be less jumpy. What you need is a good nerve tonic. I'm sure Sir Roderick would shake you up one, if you asked him. And meanwhile? What do you mean, meanwhile? What are your plans now? I propose to hoik you out of that chair and seat myself in it and take that book, the early chapters of which I found most gripping, and start catching up with my reading and try to forget. You mean you're not going to have another bash? I am not! Bertram is through! You may give this to the press if you wish. But the cow creamer... How about your Uncle Tom's grief and agony when he learns of his bereavement? Let Uncle Tom eat cake! 
Bertie, your manner is strange. Your manner would be strange too if you'd been sitting on the floor of Wilbur Cream's sleeping apartment with a chair round your neck and Mark Cream had come in. Golly, did she? In person. What did you say? I said I was looking for a mouse. Couldn't you think of anything better than that? No. And how did it all come out in the end? I melted away, leaving her plainly convinced that I was off my rocker. And so, young Bobby, when you speak of having another bash, I merely laugh bitterly. I said doing so. Catch me going into that sinister room again, not for a million pounds sterling, cash down in small notes. She made what I believe, though I wouldn't swear to it, is called a moo, putting the lips together and shoving them out, if you know what I mean. The impression I got was that she was disappointed in Bertram, having expected better things, and this was borne out by her next words. Is this the daredevil spirit of the Worcesters? As of even date, yes. Are you a man or a mouse, Bertie? Kindly do not mention the word mouse in my presence. I do think you might try again. Don't spoil the ship for the hap of the tar. I'll help you this time. Ha! Haven't I heard that word before somewhere? You may confidently expect to hear it again. No, but listen, Bertie. Nothing can possibly go wrong if we work together. Mrs. Cream won't show up this time. Lightning never strikes twice in the same place. Who made that rule? And if she does, here's what I thought we'd do. You go in and start searching, and I'll stand outside the door. And you feel this will be a lot of help? Of course it will. If I see her coming, I'll just sing. Always glad to hear you singing, of course. But in what way will that ease the strain? Oh, Bertie, you really are an abysmal chump. Don't you get it? When you hear me burst into song, you'll know there's a peril afoot, and you'll have plenty of time to slip out the window. And break my body neck? How can you break your neck? There's a balcony outside the blue room. I've seen Wilbert Cream standing on it, doing his daily dozen. He breathes deeply and ties himself into a lover's knot and... Never mind Wilbert Cream's excesses. I only put it in to make it more interesting. The point is that there's a balcony, and once you're on it, you're home. There's a water pipe at the end of it. You just slide down that and go on your way, singing a gypsy song. You aren't going to tell me that you have any objections sliding down water pipes. Jeeves says you're always doing it. I'm mused. It is true I have slid down quite a number of water pipes in my time. Circumstances have often so moulded themselves as to make such an action imperative. It was by that route I had left Skelding Hall at three in the morning after the hot water bottle incident. So while it would be too much perhaps to say that I am never happier than when sliding down water pipes, the prospect of doing so caused me a little or no concern. I began to see that there was something in this plan she was mooting, if mooting is the word I want. What tipped the scale was the thought of Uncle Tom. His love for the cow creamer might be misguided, but you couldn't get away from the fact that he was deeply attached to the beastly thing. And one didn't like the idea of him coming back from Harrogate and saying to himself, and now for a refreshing look at the old cow creamer, and finding it was not in residence. It would blot the sunshine from his life, and affectionate nephews hate, like the Dickens, to blot the sunshine from the lives of uncles. It was true that I had said, let Uncle Tommy eat cake, but I hadn't really meant it. I could not forget that when I was at Malvern House Bramley-on-Sea, this relative by marriage had often sent me postal orders, sometimes for as much as ten bob. He, in short, had done the square thing by me, and it was up to me to do the S.T. by him. 
and so it came about some five minutes later that I stood once more outside the blue room, with Bobby beside me, not actually at the moment singing in the wilderness, but prepared to do so, if Mark Cream, modelling her strategy on that of the Assyrian, came down like a wolf on the fold. The nervous system was a bit below par, of course, but not nearly so much as it might have been, knowing that Bobby would be on sentry go, made all the difference. Any gangster will tell you that the strain and anxiety of busting a safe are greatly diminished if a lookout man is at ready at any moment to say, Cheese it, the cops! Just to make sure that Wilbert hadn't returned from his hike, I knocked on the door. Nothing. The coast seemed clear. I mentioned this to Bobby, and she agreed that it was clear as a whistle. Now a quick run-through to see if you've got it straight. If I sing, what do you do? Nip out the window. And? Slide down the water pipe. And? Leg it over the horizon. Right. Then in you go and get cracking. And I went in. The dear old room was just as I'd left it. Nothing changed. And my first move, of course, was to procure another chair and give the top of the armoire the once over. It was a setback to find that the cow creamer wasn't there. I suppose these kleptomaniacs know a thing or two and don't hide the loot in the obvious place. There was nothing to be done but start the exhaustive search elsewhere, and I proceeded to do so, keeping an ear cocked for any snatch of song. None coming. It was something of the old debonair Worcester spirit that I looked under this and peered behind that, and I just crawled beneath the dressing table in pursuance of my researches when one of those disembodied voices, which was so frequent in the blue room, spoke, causing me to give my head a nasty bump. For goodness sake. It said and I came out like a pickled onion on the end of a fork to find that Mark Cream was once more a pleasant visitor. She was standing there looking down at me with a what-the-hell expression on her finely chiselled face, and I didn't blame her. Gives a woman a start, naturally, to come into her son's bedroom and observe an alien trouser seat sticking out from under the dressing table. We went into our routine. Mr. Worcester. Oh, hello. It's you again? Why, yes, I said, for this was, of course, perfectly correct. And an odd sound proceeded from her. Not exactly a hiccup, and yet not quite not a hiccup. Are you still looking for that mouse? That's right. I thought I saw it run under there, and I was about to deal with it regardless of its age or sex. What makes you think there is a mouse here? Oh, one gets these ideas. Do you often hunt for mice? Fairly frequently. An idea seemed to strike her then. You don't think you're a cat? No, I'm pretty straight on that. But you pursue mice? Yes. Well, this is very interesting. I must consult my psychiatrist when I get back to New York. I'm sure he will tell me that this mouse fixation is a symbol of something. Your head feels funny, doesn't it? It does rather, I said, for the bump I had given it had been a juicy one, and the temples were throbbing. I thought as much, a sort of burning sensation, I imagine. Now you do just as I tell you. Go to your room and lie down and relax. Try to get a little sleep. Perhaps a cup of strong tea would help. And, now, what is the name of that alienist I've heard people over here talking so much about? Miss Wickham mentioned him before. Bossum? Blossom? Glossop, that's it. Sir Roderick Glossop. I think you ought to consult him. A friend of mine is at his clinic now. She says he's wonderful. Cures the most stubborn cases. Meanwhile, rest is the thing. Go and have a good rest. 
At an early point in these exchanges, I had started to sidle to the door. I now sidled through it, rather like a diffident crab on some sandy beach trying to avoid the attentions of a child with a spade. But I didn't go to my room and relax. I went in search of Bobby again, breathing fire. I wanted to take up with her the matter of that absence of the burst of melody. I mean, considering that a mere couple of bars of some popular song would have saved me from an experience that had turned the bones to water and whitened the hair from the neck up. I felt entitled to demand an explanation of why those bars had not emerged. I found her outside the front door at the wheel of her car. Oh, hello, Bertie. She said, and a fish on ice couldn't have spoken more calmly. Have you got it? I ground a tooth or two and waved the arms in passionate gesture. No, I said, ignoring her query as to why I had chosen this moment to do my switch exercises. I haven't, but more cream got me. Her eyes widened and she squeaked a bit. Don't tell me she caught you bending again. Bending is right. I was halfway under the dressing table. You and your singing, I said, and I'm not sure I didn't add the word forsooth. Her eyes widened a bit farther, and she squeaked another squeak. Oh, Bertie, I'm so sorry about that. Me too! You see, I was called away to the telephone. Mother rang up. She wanted to tell me that you were a nincompoop. One wonders where she picks up such expressions. From her literary friends, I suppose. She knows a lot of literary people. Great help to the vocabulary. Yes, she was delighted when I told her I was coming home. She wants to have a long talk. About me, no doubt. Yes, I expect your name will crop up, but I mustn't stay here chatting with you, Bertie. If I don't get started, I shan't hit the old nest till daybreak. It's a pity you made such a mess of things. Poor Mr. Travers, he'll be broken-hearted. Still, into each life some rain must fall. She said and drove off, spraying gravel in all directions. If Jeeves had been there, I would have turned to him and said, Women, Jeeves! And he would have said, yes, sir, or possibly precisely, sir. And this would have healed the bruised spirit to a certain extent. But he wasn't. I merely laughed a bitter laugh and made for the lawn. A go at Mark Cream's goose flesher might, I thought, do something to soothe the vibrating ganglions. And it did. I hadn't been reading long when drowsiness stole over me. The tired eyelids closed, and in another couple of ticks, I was off to dreamland slubbering as soundly as if I'd been that cat, Augustus. I awoke to find that some two hours had passed, and I was still stretching the limbs when I remembered that I hadn't sent that wire to Kipper Herring, inviting him to come and join the gang. I went to Aunt Dahlia's boudoir and repaired this omission, telephoning the communication to someone at the post office who would have been well advised to consult a good orist. This done, I headed for the open spaces again, and when approaching the lawn with a view to getting on with my reading, when, hearing engine noises in the background, turned to cast an eye in their direction. Blow me tight if I didn't behold Kipper, alighting from his car at the front door!